As you're seated, go ahead and take out your Bibles. We are in the book of Zechariah, and we are at chapter 3 as we look at the fourth vision of Zechariah. And the title of the message is The Vision of the High Priest and the Branch. And I believe that the Lord has a very powerful message for us all this morning. So let's ask him to open up our hearts and our eyes and our ears for understanding. Heavenly Father, Lord, we come to your word, and we know that your word is the food for our very lives, Father. So we come and we ask, Lord, nourish us. Father, as we read and we digest your word, we expect to be nourished by it and for it to sustain us. And so we thank you for the privilege of having your word, Father God. And we ask in Jesus' name that we would be able to apply it. Amen. So if I were to ask you this morning, what is the greatest problem facing the world? Some possible answers might be poverty. Maybe you're well uh, knowledgeable over the poverty rate outside the U.S. You see, the U.S. has no idea what poverty looks like because we are the richest nation in the world and the majority of the folks that live in the United States are in the top 3% of the world when it comes to wealth. Um, Maybe you think it's dictators. Maybe there's a lot of uh, saber rattling going on by some of the world leaders and the nation leaders and or, or just the news reports that you see of how they're treating their people, how they're dealing with other nations and, and where they're at. That brings along with it, maybe you think the greatest threat, or the greatest problem is the threat of world war or nuclear war. It doesn't matter if, who, who it's between, right? Once it becomes nuclear, it is a world war. Maybe, maybe you think it's globalism. Everything's going towards that one world government, that one world order. Food scarcity. That's been a major talk lately. Maybe that's a, the major problem facing the world. Politics. That one goes up there. And what about racial tensions? All those things are our problems for sure. But you know what the greatest problem facing the world today and all men alike for all time is sin. Which means the greatest need is the appeasement, the atonement, or the forgiveness of that sin. The world is literally starved to know the forgiveness of sin. Um, their soul knows it. Their heart won't admit it. Or it outright ignores it. Others have come to know the forgiveness of God through the promise of forgiveness in Jesus Christ. They know what it is to be made right with the maker of heaven and earth. Now there's a story that's told and it has its origins in many different places, but one of which is Spain. The stories of a father and his teenage son with whom there was a falling out. They had a resulting strained relationship. You see, the son ended up running away from home and it was not long before the father began a journey searching for his rebellious son. It was in Madrid that he came to his last ditch, ditch effort to find him. And so the father chose to take out an ad in the local newspaper. The ad read, Dear Paco, meet me in front of the newspaper office at noon. All is forgiven. I love you, your father. 
The next day at noon, in front of the newspaper office, 800 Pacos showed up, (laughs) all seeking forgiveness and love from their fathers. Maybe you're here today, and maybe you believe in God's forgiveness to a degree. And what I mean by that is maybe you think that God has forgiven you, but that God has no desire to use you. Or that God can not use you or no longer use you. You feel like maybe you've been working on the underneath of a car all day and you come out and you're covered in that grime, that grease, and your help is needed to fold the white sheets. How could you possibly help in that situation? But what started as a hypothetical situation right there is actually the picture of a serious matter that is facing the returned exiles in Jerusalem. The question on their mind, and maybe the question on your mind today, is how can a filthy sinner like me serve a holy God? Have you ever had your past haunt you as you seek to serve God? The voice in the back of your mind that tells you, who do you think you are to teach others the Bible? How can you share the love of Christ when you fail him? And so what happens is a lot of us begin to say, you know what? Someday, when I'm holy enough, I'll serve God. I can't right now. How could a sinner like me serve God? Surely he wants better people. Surely he has better people. So the fourth vision that we're going to look at this morning, it answers that question. Symbolically, the first three visions picture Israel's external deliverance from exile and captivity, her expansion and possession of the promised land. The fourth vision shows Israel's internal cleansing from sin and the reinstatement to her priestly office and function. This vision, like the ones before it, it's given with the sole intent purpose of God to give hope and encouragement and reassurance to his people. While we can apply this text individually, we have to first see it at the natural, national level for Israel in prophetic scope. And the ultimate final fulfillment of this awaits Messiah's second coming. The vision does, however, have an immediate application to people who were rebuilding the temple to show them that they were not laboring in vain. And now it also applies to us who are here this morning seeking to build God's living temple, the church. And the question before us is how can we as sinners serve a holy God? It's with that question in mind that we turn to Zechariah chapter three. It says, then he showed me the high priest Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord while Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua is dressed in filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. Then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festive robes. Then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. 
So a clean turban was placed on his head and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua. This is what the Lord of armies says. If you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will also grant you access among those who are standing here. Listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I'm about to bring my servant, the branch. Notice the stone I have set before Joshua. On that one stone are seven eyes, and I will engrave an inscription upon it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. And on that day, each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. This vision is filled with wonderful promises. And it answers that question, how can we as sinners serve a holy God? And there's some promises that come out of this. And we're going to see that we stand condemned before the Lord. We stand condemned before the Lord. There's no, there's no way around that. There's no sugarcoating that. It says, then he showed me the high priest, Joshua, standing before the angel of the Lord with Satan standing at his right side to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? Now Joshua was dressed with filthy clothes as he stood before the angel. So Zechariah's vision starts off with a, with a scene of a courtroom with Joshua standing before the angel of the Lord. And he's standing before the angel of the Lord. And we know the angel of the Lord is Jesus. And the phrase standing before in the original language gives the idea of doing his priestly duties. He was standing before the Lord in priestly service as a ministering priest before the Lord. And while serving as a priest before the Lord, the vision continues to pan and there's Satan in view at his right side to accuse him. And Satan hates this whole scene. He always has. Why? Because Satan hates when God's people come into the presence of the Lord to minister or to serve unto the, unto the Lord. Now the Bible teaches this about Satan. He is a fallen angel. He's fallen because he rebelled against God and he tempted Eve in the garden and caused the fall of mankind. The Bible also teaches a mystery to us that Satan would have access to the throne of God. In Job, Job chapter one, one of the most confusing starts to a book in the Bible is the fact that in Job, it says one day the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them. How does Satan have access to God? And the Lord even asked Satan, he says, where have you come from? He says, from roaming the earth and walking around on it. And this isn't the first time or the only time. Chapter two of Job, on the day that the sons of God again came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them to present himself to the Lord. And the Lord again asked Satan, where have you come from? And he goes from roaming about the earth and walking around on it. I can't answer the question how Satan has access or why. All I can say is scripture shows that he does. Satan is known as the adversary 
Satan is known as the opponent. Literally, that's what his name means. He stands against us and he stands against those who are the Lord's. Peter describes Satan as a roaring lion. He says, be alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion looking for anyone he can devour. Jesus described in the same way. He says, Simon, Simon, look out. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And Satan is known as the accuser, for he accuses God's people. Revelation chapter 12. So the great dragon was thrown out, the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then I heard a loud voice from heaven say, the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have now come because the accuser of our brothers and sisters who accuses them before God day and night has been thrown down. Satan has access to God and the only thing he does is he accuses day and night the brethren, anyone who desires to live holy and follow after God. It is important that we understand Satan's tactics, not so that we copy them, but so that we are aware of them. And we have to be aware of this. Satan lies to us about God, but when he talks to God about us, he doesn't have to lie. When he accuses us before God, he's not lying And as he accuses us before God, the reason he accuses us to God is because God's throne is a throne of justice. God is a righteous judge. And Satan is here accusing and he's pointing out and he's saying this one's unworthy and that one's unworthy and this one's defiled. Not because he cares about justice being done. Because he he, he wants to show God that he can't make anybody worthy, that nobody's worthy for him and he can't make anyone worthy. So he declares him unfit to stand before the Lord. He says he's unfit to be in this office. He's unfit as a high priest. And as he, defi- as he points out the defilement of the high priest, understand that the high priest always served as a symbol, as the representative before God of the nation of Israel. If he's defiled, the nation as a whole is defiled. And if he's telling the truth, it seems as he has an airtight case, right? Open, shut, slam dunk. I mean, verse three says, Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes. But we have to understand this glorious truth. Satan may stand before God day and night accusing us. But God speaks to Satan with a rebuke to the accusation. You see, a rebuke in the Lord And here's what I want you to see. There's a specialness out of this because it says that the angel of the Lord spoke. It's spoken by the angel of the Lord. And then he says, in the name of the Lord, you're rebuked. So the angel of the Lord we know is Jesus. And Jesus rebukes Satan in the name of the Father. He says, may the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Isn't this man a burning stick snatched from the fire? A man saved from the fire and the fire ready to be consumed yet pulled from it. The case was airtight except for one thing. 
but for the grace of God. You see, the truth that we need to know about the grace of God is the grace of God is greater than all our sin, and it is able to pluck us from the fire. The angel of the Lord rebukes Satan, and he proceeds to acquit Joshua. He acquits him, not because the accusations are false. They are most definitely true. It's purely because of God's gracious love for his people. And the rebuke comes in the right time. Understand that Satan accuses and Christ defends, and it's a present help in a time of trouble. Because Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. The Bible goes on to teach that there is not one righteous, no, not one. And Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. But the gracious gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. You see, 1 John writes in his epistle, he tells us, he says, my little children, I'm writing you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, if anyone is filthy, if anyone comes before the Lord and is dirty, we have an advocate with the Father. Advocate, another word for that is lawyer, a representative. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. That's why he rebukes him in the name of the Father. He's our lawyer. He stands at our defense because he himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only ours, but for the whole world. So Paul's wonderful words in Romans 8.33, who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died. But even more, he has been raised and he is also at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. So we may stand condemned before the Lord, but we have an advocate in Christ Jesus. We see that we are also cleansed and clothed by the Lord. Look at verse four and five. It says, so the angel of the Lord spoke to those standing before him, take off his filthy clothes. And then he said to him, see, I have removed your iniquity from you and I will clothe you with festive robes. And then I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. And so a clean turban was placed on his head and they clothed him in garments while the angel of the Lord was standing nearby. So Joshua was standing there in the vision, standing in filthy clothes. I don't, I can picture what that's like to stand there. And someone says, that guy is filthy. Look at him. And you're, you're, you understand that it's true. And you're just, your heart's sinking. You're like, I have no defense. And then as you're standing there, the Lord speaks to those standing before you and he says, take off his filthy clothes. Now the high priest does not wear filthy clothes. This is the clothing of the high priest. You'll notice that the high priest, as they perform their duties, they are dressed specifically. They're clothed in linen breeches for the undergarment. Those are the white undergarments with a linen white coat. There's a blue robe that is um, adorned with an ephod, woven with blue, purple, scarlet, white linen, and gold with a girdle of the same. 
and the breastplate the same with 12 precious stones set in gold. White linen, the turban is white linen with a gold plate and a ribbon of blue. Looking at Joshua, nobody else would say, oh, look at his filthy clothes. Because from the outside, nobody can tell. On the outside, it looks, they, they, they probably would have said, wait a minute, what are you talking? Look, look at that beautiful, look at that ornate. Look at it, it, it just screams significance. All things are revealed for what they are in the presence of the Lord. Let us remember that because I think it's human tendency to try to hide who we are as if we could hide it from the Lord. I mean, they tried it ever since the Garden of Eden. Adam was hiding in the garden. God goes, where are you? Not because he didn't know where he was, but because he's saying, Adam, like seriously, you're hiding. In his presence, even high priestly robes are filthy garments. The most ornate dress is defiled rags. And Isaiah tells us why. Isaiah 64, 6, all of us have become something unclean and all our righteous acts are like a polluted garment. All of us wither like a leaf and our iniquities carry us away like the wind. All of our efforts at being religious, all of our efforts at being generous, all of our efforts at being good, everybody on the outside, they'll say, wow, look at that good person. Look at how great they are. The presence of the Lord reveals our motives and our heart and all our supposed righteousness becomes as rottenness. It becomes filthy clothing that adorns us. I can't help but wonder if Joshua is like I am. Standing there before the Lord pointed out your filthiness, looking around, going, can, can I clean myself off? How do I cleanse myself? That's what's going through our mind when we tell ourselves that somehow before we can pray, before we can worship, or before we can serve God, that we have to somehow clean ourselves by ourselves. I want you to see in this vision, Joshua, what he had to do. He had to remain standing and passively while realizing and agreeing that his clothes are filthy. And when the angel of the Lord commands that his clothes be removed, and he says, I have removed your iniquity from you, he had to allow Jesus to remove the iniquity. And then see the great promise from Jesus. He doesn't just remove our iniquity. That would be enough. If he just removed our iniquity, that would be enough. That would be more than he ever should have done. But he knows that if that's all he did, all we do is get dirty again. So look at what Jesus instead does. The angel of the Lord tells Joshua, he says, I will clothe you. Jesus removes the iniquity and clothes us afresh. Isaiah 61.10, 
wonderful promise. I greatly, I rejoice greatly in the Lord. I exult in my God because he has clothed me with the garment of salvation and wrapped me in a robe of righteousness. As a groom wears a turban and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. Salvation is not us cleansing ourselves. It is simply allowing Jesus to remove our iniquity and clothe us in his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul tells us, he says, he, God, made the one who did not know sin, Jesus Christ, his only begotten son, he made him to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And that might isn't like a, well, if you try really hard, that might is more of a certainty than any other certainty that we have in this world. It is certain that we will have the righteousness of God because Christ has given it to us. The removal of and the putting on of clothing is deeply signified. Uh, and it, and it, it is the complete and total forgiveness of your iniquity. Understand that when Christ removed your clothes, your filthy garments, that was a complete and total cleansing. He didn't forget a spot. And when he clothed you in his clothes, that is a complete and total restoration. And that's what it was signifying to Israel. You have been forgiven and you have been restored as a priestly nation. Even to the putting on of a new turban to signify the return to service. Did you know that the turban has a gold plate on the front of it that has an inscription? That inscription reads, holiness to the Lord. The Lord in grace removes our sin and he appropriately covers us. He's been doing this since the Garden of Eden when Adam was hiding from God and God said, where are you? And then he says, I was hiding because I was naked and afraid. And he says, who told you you were naked? And then he's like, well, actually I'm not because I'm wearing these fig leaves. And fig leaves, I don't know if you know this or not, but they are very itchy, very scratchy. They're not comfortable. They, they, they just... And you know what God did is he took the uncomfortable clothes. He took the, the man-made, our human efforts, our human works clothes, and he exchanged them. He sacrificed and clothed him with the clothes of the sacrifice. And that's what he does for us also through Jesus Christ. In Revelation 7.13, says, Then one of the elders asked me, Who are these people in white robes? And where did they come from? He says, sir, you know. And then he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. And then at the end of Revelation, Revelation 19, verse seven, let us be glad, rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. We have to come to the understanding of this because I think it, may, it might just be me. And if it's just me, this is what the Lord is speaking to me. But I'm going to share it with you because it was like, it's not a lifelong process of God infusing enough righteousness into us that eventually we qualify for heaven. There are some churches that would teach that there is a 
long process before you are good enough or purified enough. No, what it is, is it is a judicial decision on God's part that takes place in an instant. As the clothing of Joshua here pictures, God justifies the guilty sinner by the grace alone, through Christ alone, received by faith alone. Our good deeds have nothing to do with it at all. That cleansing and that clothing come with conditions. Not that you'll lose it, but that there's an expectation. Then the angel of the Lord charged Joshua. He says, this is what the Lord of armies says. If you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you will both rule my house and take care of my courts. I will also grant you access among those who are standing here. So the angel of the Lord charges Joseph, not with a crime. This isn't the charge of an accusation. This is a charge of service. This is a commissioning. This is him saying, I've cleansed you, I've clothed you, and I'm calling you. And he's telling Joshua that. Why? Because Joshua is serving in a role. And he needed to know that he is fit, qualified, and called. In the same way he needed to know that, I think the church today needs to know that that you are fit, you are qualified, and you are called because God calls you. He says, if you walk in my ways and keep my mandates, you will rule my house and care for my courts. He's talking about the priestly service. You're going to rule in his house. The house is the temple where all the worship happens, where all the sacrifice happens, where all the service for God happens on behalf of the people. And then he says, and care for my courts. That is every part. That is where all the people are represented. The, the Jews, the women, the Gentiles, all of them. There's the court of the Gentiles. There's the court of the Jews. There's the court of the women. They all have their spot there. And he's saying, you're called to minister to all of them. If you keep my ways, or my mandates and walk in my ways. You see, And then he says, I'll also grant you access among those standing here. He says, access among those who have access to the throne room of heaven. A stick plucked from the fire. The only reason to rescue a stick is that you see a further purpose for it. The same is true. God has saved his people for a purpose. And he saves the church for a purpose as well. There is a requirement for service. There is not a single person in the church today that has been clothed in the righteousness of Christ and forgiven of all their sins that is not called to service. You are called and you are required for service. Joshua is commissioned and charged to walk in his ways and to keep his mandates. But we need to understand that the cleansing and the restoration by the Lord involve responsibility to the Lord. It's important to see Joshua wasn't put on a probationary period either. It wasn't like God was like, okay, you have 60 days to prove yourself and then you're done. This is God saying, you're called commissioned now. You're absolutely cleansed. You're absolutely restored. And the continued service does not rely on a perfect past, but going forward in faithfulness to the Lord and his word. And the same is true for you this morning. 
The reward or result of this service is the privilege of access to God and blessing on his people. You see, God pours out his blessing for those who walk in his ways, for those who minister as priests before him in worship and prayer. And I'm not sure if you know this or not. Maybe you do. Maybe you need the reminder. Everyone in Christ Jesus, cleansed by him, has been made a royal priest. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, as you can see, they're written in invisible ink digitally. As you come to him, a living stone, Rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And he continues on in the same chapter in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so there's a commissioning to service. And then in this vision, we see the covenant of the Lord, the promises of God to them. Verse 8, he says, listen, high priest Joshua, you and your colleagues sitting before you. Indeed, these men are a sign that I'm about to bring my servant, the branch. Notice the stone I've set before Joshua. And on that one stone are seven eyes. I will engrave an inscription on it. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. And I will take away the iniquity of this land in a single day. On that day each of you will invite his neighbor to sit under his vine and fig tree. This is the declaration of the Lord of armies. The Lord continues. He says, listen, high priest. Notice he doesn't say Joshua anymore. High priest. Just a reaffirmation. I have called you. He says that you and your colleagues sitting before you. Now, I tried to discover and, and, and look into it, like, is this people gone before him or are these people that are coming after him? And I see it as people coming after him. The line of the royal high priest and everyone after him are a sign that God will bring the one true high priest, the branch. The high priest serves as a sign that the Lord will indeed bring his servant. You see, the high priest of Israel, the Messiah, is promised. And the high priest represents what he's coming to do. You see, the high priest represents Israel and makes sacrifice for Israel to remove sins and to lead in worship. The high priest sacrifices every year on Yom Kippur to cleanse Israel of all her sins. Every year, every year, because the sacrifice that they make is insufficient. And this is made clear. Um, we live on this side of the cross. We have this side of the uh, apostles that go out and, and they've explained it all for us. And Hebrews chapter 10 is a wonderful breakdown of the high priest and the representation of Christ and the fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And so Hebrews chapter 10 says, since the law has only a shadow of the good things to come. 
and not the reality itself of those things. It can never perfect the worshipers by the same sacrifices that they continually offer year after year. Otherwise, they wouldn't have stopped being offered since the worshipers, purified once for all, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But the sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year after year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. You see, the sacrificial system was just to remind Israel, this is what it takes to cover sin. And it happens continually and continually and continually. And he says, and everything that you do with your hands is insufficient to handle it in totality. So why did they do it? Because it was to be a reminder. It was to be a a reminder of the things to come, the things that are promised. It was to say, God, we are incapable of doing this. We're just killing animals and they're just, and we keep sinning and we can't cover it. And we can't, and they were supposed to come to God. And God had said, I am sending the one who will take them away. And so it says in verse five, therefore, as he, Christ was coming into the world, he said, you did not desire sacrifice and offering, but you prepared a body for me. You did not delight in whole burnt offerings and sin offerings. Then I said, see, it is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, God. And after he says above, you did not desire or delight in sacrifices and offerings, whole burnt offerings and sin offerings, which are offered according to the law. He then says, see, I have come to do your will. And he takes away the first to establish the second. And by this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all time. And every priest stands day after day ministering and offering the same sacrifices time after time, which can never take away sins. But this man, after offering one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. He is now waiting until his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are sanctified. That is a verse to underline in your Bible and understand because the accuser accuses day and night, but that verse rings true for all eternity. And now where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. That's why we don't have the sacrificial system. That's why we don't sacrifice up here on stage. We don't have to. One sacrifice made for all time. It's only in Christ Jesus and his sacrifice that you are sanctified, purified, and clothed in his righteousness. Next, the vision moves on. He says, notice the stone I've set before Joshua. And he says, and on that stone are seven eyes. Now we can get into numbers and everything, but in the Bible, the simple thing is when you see the number seven, it's indicating perfection or completion. And what he's saying is with it being eyes and the number seven in that stone is the complete vision says, I will take away the iniquities of this land in a single day. We just read when that happened. When Christ Jesus came and offered himself. All the sins of the land were taken away in a single day because it says that he died not only for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. 
And then he says, and on that day, each of you will invite your neighbor to sit among the vine and the fig tree, a sign of peace and tranquility. And Hebrews showed us that fulfillment and Joshua received the promise, which was the full vision. We know that as the church, but that promise still sits for the nation of Israel. The key message of this difficult verse is the, the, the fact that it says the removal of Israel's sins in one day, that miracle of grace. It's described in Zechariah chapter five and also in Zechariah chapter 12 through 13. And it will be considered in the later chapters as well. And at the second advent, when Israel beholds the one whom they pierced, it's declared in Zechariah 12, 10, that they will repent and be cleansed. And again, Isaiah foretold. Isaiah 66, verse eight, who has heard of such a thing? Who has seen such things? Can a land be born in one day or a nation delivered in an instant? Yet as soon as Zion was in labor, she gave birth to her sons. How is it possible for filthy sinners ever to stand acceptably in the presence of a holy God? We have no righteousness of our own. But there is a righteousness that can be ours if you don't have it already. And Martin Luther called it an alien righteousness. A righteousness that comes to us from outside. It's the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a couple of key points that I want us to take home that I believe that the Lord is really speaking to us this morning. The first is this, God cleanses sinners on the basis of his sovereign grace, not on the basis of merit. You can't earn it. All you can do is receive it. The second thing, we talked about the accuser and how he sits on the shoulder and he continues to accuse. There is something that we have to be careful of. We have to trust the Lord and and seek to develop discernment because we need to discern between Satan's accusations and the Holy Spirit's work of conviction. Because if we just declare everything as Satan and, and we never hear when the Lord is correcting us, we continue to walk in our sin thinking we're fine and we're not. The next thing is we need to know that we cannot defend ourselves against Satan's accusation by pointing to our own merit. We have to let the Lord defend us. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. And then we need to remember, we need to know, we need to hold on to this truth. God cleanses guilty sinners through Christ, the Messiah. And he not only removes our sin, but he clothes us with clean garments. You stand before God right now in Christ Jesus, forgiven and cleansed and restored. And that's important to know because God wants to use cleansed sinners to serve him. He wants to use you. I don't know where you're at with that. If you're not serving, 
either here at church or serving somewhere. And, and you are called to serve at church, by the way, not, not just by us here at the leadership, but in the Bible, we are all part of the body of Christ and we are minister and we're all given gifts and we're all called to certain service. And that is for the benefit of the body. But if you're not serving, you're not fulfilling that last part. And I don't know if it's because you've convinced yourself that God can't use you, doesn't want to use you. And, and you make up a lot of excuses. We make up a lot of excuses. I don't want to keep saying you because I've done this myself. We make up a lot of excuses. I remember um, before, I'm too young for this. Who's, who's going to listen to this young pastor? I mean, it, it's been a humbling experience to be a pastor over people that are older than me, not just physically, uh, chronologically, but also older um, in Christ. We, we tell ourselves that God can't use us because where I'm at in life, I, I'm in college, I'm, I'm stuck with school, I have to work a full-time job and they require more hours, or I have small kids, or I have large kids, or I have no kids. How can I be used? I'm, I'm too old, I'm too young. We have all sorts of excuses and God is saying this, I want to use you and I've called you and I've cleansed you and I've made you and I've equipped you. But as he uses us, we have to walk in his ways. But then we get his blessings and his promises. We'll be used as a blessing to his people. And we'll have access to him just as those in heaven do now. You know, when John Wesley was only six years old, he was trapped inside a burning house. And he was only rescued when one neighbor climbed onto another neighbor's shoulders and pulled him out of the window. There's a picture of the scene that was drawn for Wesley and he kept the drawing until he died and under it he wrote Zechariah 3.2. Is this not a brand plucked from the burning fire? And it's an accurate picture of where we are. And if you're here this morning and God has not rescued you from your sins, you need to let go of your good works. You need to let go of all that you're trying to hold on to that you're going to try to defend yourself with. And what you need to do is you need to stand passive and you need to allow God to cleanse you by his sovereign grace through Christ alone. Because that's the whole Christian message in a nutshell. Jesus provided the righteousness we needed and took the penalty we deserved. And if we will come to him in the filth of our sins, he will clothe us in his righteousness. We don't have to cleanse ourselves. We can't. We come to him filthy. And you know what? What he wants you to do is he wants you to say, I'm filthy. Cleanse me. And if you're here this morning and you do know the rescue of Jesus, you know what it is to be snatched out of that burning fire. You know what it is to feel that cleansing power of forgiveness and being clothed in his righteousness. And he's rescued you so that you can now serve him as you walk in his ways. Remembering that our service to God, it's not acceptable because we're perfect. This might be an earth-shattering moment, but as you seek to serve God now in your righteous status, you're still not going to be perfect. And that's okay. 
You serve him because you're clothed in the rich robe of the perfect righteousness of Christ Jesus. As the worship team comes up right now, we're going we're gonna to have one last song. And it's during this song that we invite people to allow the Lord to work in their heart. And you can do it in the comfort of the seat where you're at right there, if that's where you're comfortable. We also invite you to come forward because sometimes it takes a physical act of moving in one direction to make that conscious connection that you are making a choice for the holy living God to come and seek that forgiveness. And it doesn't matter if you're seeking forgiveness for the first time, the 50th time, or for all time. Christ stands ready to receive you. And if that's you and you want to get up and you want to come forward, you want to ask for prayer, you want to ask for forgiveness, I will be available up front. But I ask you, do not leave here without knowing what it is to be that burning stick plucked from the fire, to be cleansed of your filthy clothes and clothed in his righteousness. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the vision that you gave Zechariah, Father God, the meaning that it had for your nation of Israel. We look forward to seeing the the great revival of your glorious nation, Father God. And in that time of waiting, as we are here as a special part in your whole plan as the church of Christ, we thank you that those same promises of being cleansed and clothed in Christ's righteousness stand true for us and that you have called us as a royal priesthood, Father, that we might be of service to you. Let us come and serve you in Jesus' name. Amen.